Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 11 and reading verses 1 through 16 uh, today. And uh, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. When last we gathered, Jesus had retreated from Jerusalem and the volatile atmosphere that was intensifying there on the heels of his latest I Am statements and the sixth of his uh, seven signs. Uh, His retreat took him to the far side of the Jordan River to the place where John the Baptist was first conducting his ministry some short years before. In chapter 1, the gospel writer refers to this as Bethany across the Jordan to distinguish it from the Bethany that was a stone's throw from Jerusalem. What's interesting about this is that we have no known remains of a city or a village by this name in any historical records, but we do have a region of the Tetrarchy awarded to Philip that was called Batanea. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there was a kind of sloppiness that plagued ancient spelling where T's were many times given a T-H such that Batanea becomes Bathanea, and it may be that John is referring to this region as Bethany, which makes a world of sense for a couple of reasons. First, this region lies to the east of 
the Sea of Galilee, and it extends south then to along the border of the River Jordan for some distance. And this is where many have speculated that John was originally baptizing. And there was a wilderness area nearby where Jesus' 40 days of temptation could have occurred. But secondly, this region fell under the tetrarchy of Philip, who was the half-brother to Herod Antipas. And by comparison, Philip was a saint, far less malicious and decidedly more docile than Herod. Philip was practically no political threat to Jesus at all. So it makes perfectly good sense that Jesus would have sought refuge here. But finally, John the Gospel writer may have seen some historical symmetry in Jesus' public ministry beginning in this Bethany of the north where he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for a mission that would result in his crucifixion and Jesus' final major sign occurring in the Bethany of the south where he will raise from the dead his good friend Lazarus and be just a couple of miles from Calvary where his own final trial will occur. So John sets the context for what is about to occur by introducing new characters that have played no role in his gospel up until now. A man named Lazarus, along with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who live in this Bethany near Jerusalem. These individuals have evidently been benefactors of Jesus and his ministry based upon a couple of New Testament references. We find them mentioned in Luke's Gospel in connection with a time when Jesus and his disciples are evidently enjoying their hospitality, and Mary is seated at Jesus' feet while he teaches, and Martha is busy in the kitchen getting more and more annoyed over the fact that the responsibility for preparing all the food for this group has become quite taxing. And she then enters the room where Jesus is teaching, and she asks him to admonish her sister Mary to come and help in the kitchen But that appeal did not get answered in the way that she desired. Because Jesus admonishes her about right priorities. She was fully focused on the food that physically sustains, while Mary was focused on the food that spiritually sustains. And then Jesus says to her, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we know from this that Jesus and his disciples had a relationship with the family that was born of their affinity for his ministry, and they helped to sustain it through their offering of a place to rest and be fed whenever they were in and around Jerusalem. But John mentions here that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment prior to his death. Now, John does not relate this incident until the next chapter, chapter 12. But as he introduces these characters for the first time, he mentions what was probably a well-known story in the collective memory of the early church in order to distinguish her from all the other Marys that were known in the church. Now we will get to that story soon enough, but I want, but what I want you to think about here is that Mary made an extravagant offering to Jesus in anointing him with a pound of pure nard 
which was the equivalent of a year's salary for a common laborer. Such generosity, while it came from a heart that was eternally grateful for the resurrection of her brother, also came from a heart that was probably always generously inclined towards Jesus and his ministry. Jesus was welcomed into their home on more than one occasion, which is why John includes the message that the two sisters sent to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now this speaks of a relationship between them all that is more than a casual acquaintance. It speaks of a deep friendship born of more than one shared meal. It speaks of a spiritual connection that was filled with mutual respect and affinity. They have come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They are firmly in his camp and they are trusted allies in this ongoing antagonism between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. It is this deep friendship that makes John's next statement something of a head-scratcher. Because upon hearing that Lazarus was gravely ill, Jesus declares this illness does not lead to death. Now on the face of it, non-believers point to things like this and declare that Jesus cannot be the Son of God because he obviously did not know the extent of Lazarus's illness. And if he was the incarnate Son of God, they argue, he absolutely would have known the gravity of the situation and would have indicated such to his disciples. Or, if he knew that Lazarus was about to die and would die, then this is nothing more than a bald-faced lie that Jesus tells his disciples, and again, he is disqualified to be the incarnate Son of God. But all those arguments is to ignore the qualifying statement that Jesus makes here next. This illness, he says, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This story would have been an entirely different story had Jesus dropped everything and hustled off to Bethany as soon as he heard that his good friend was gravely ill. Had Jesus arrived in time to heal Lazarus, then his healing would have simply been one out of a great number of healings that Jesus performed over the course of his ministry and would have been merely a ho-hum moment. It would have been lost in the crowd of signs and hardly been worth a mention. Or had Jesus arrived just hours after Lazarus died, and he raised him from the dead, his critics would have argued that Lazarus must not have really been dead, but simply in a death-like coma. And while Jesus' healing would have been laudable, it would not have proved anything concerning his identity as the incarnate Son of God. What Jesus is indicating here by saying this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, is that God has a grander plan in mind. There is something much bigger unfolding in this event, and the timing of all this is critical. So it isn't that Jesus is saying Lazarus is not so ill that he is not going to die. He is saying Lazarus's illness is not going to be the end of his earthly life right now. 
God the Father who has been giving me particular works to do and I have been doing them is going to use Lazarus in a way that will be a blessing to him and to his sisters and it is going to bring glory to God and to the Son. What is unfolding here is a story that is found really throughout Scripture. Joseph is sold into slavery. But God uses him to save Israel, and God receives the glory. Israel is enslaved by Pharaoh, but God uses Moses to carry God's word to him, and then God gains the victory, and all the glory goes to God. God tells Gideon to send home thousands of warriors until only 300 remain. And still, the army of the Midianites are defeated, and God gains the glory. The prophet Elijah faces all the prophets of Baal, And then he soaks the altar with tons of water, which God then consumes with his holy fire, and God gains the glory. But it is not just that God will gain glory from this episode. God is engaged in a dramatization that explains our spiritual condition, as well as the only source of hope that is available to us. The Apostle Paul declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He declares that the wages of sin is death. He declares that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope and without God in the world. And so as this story unfolds, Lazarus is really a secondary character in this dramatization. He has no lines to speak. He has nothing to do. There will be no camera close-up for him. He only needs to die, and that even not so dramatically. But his death becomes most necessary for the viewer, for it sets the stage for the primary actor in this short drama to put on the display, the grace and the power and the sovereignty and the glory of Almighty God. John points out here that Jesus' affection for this family is without question. Jesus loved them all. And John does not want anyone to doubt this, which is why he expresses it here, so that everyone will rightly understand what is about to transpire. So to put it another way, it would be fair to say, out of Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Jesus remained in the region of Batanea two more days. Now from the perspective of of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this episode will not initially strike them as being very good. Mary and Martha are about to be without their brother under whose protective arm they have been living. The two of them will have to begin thinking of eligible bachelors to marry or a kinsman who will take them under his wing for life was extremely difficult for an unattached woman in the first century. But from God's perspective, this unfolding drama is illustrative of Paul's declaration in Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now when Paul writes that, he literally means all things. He does not mean that only things that we deem to be good will occur in our lives. What he means is that all the things that happen in the lives of those who love God and are called according to His purpose occur for their ultimate good. And it isn't simply 
that God takes the bad things and he applies a little Christian magic to it and turns a sow's ear into a silk purse, but rather that he willfully allows hard and difficult things to occur in our lives because God's purposes for us are being produced through these things. So, Lazarus is on his deathbed. His sisters send a messenger to Jesus who's in Batanea, about 95 miles away, and easily a four-day journey depending on the mode of transportation. And Jesus then waits for two more days until he divinely perceives that Lazarus has died. And then he indicates to his disciples that the time has come for them to head to Bethany near Jerusalem. Lazarus would have been buried before his death day was over because this was their custom. And it was on this day that Jesus and the twelve began their own four-day journey to cover the 95 miles to Bethany. Now there are those who want to make Jesus responsible for Lazarus's demise because of his delay, as though that is some form of evil. And to that I would argue that God is not responsible for the death sentence that resides in every man, woman, and child. Adam is responsible for that death sentence because of his rebellion in the garden. But I also would not argue against God being well within his rights as our creator to declare when our time is up. He is the potter, we are the clay, and God can choose to do whatever he wills with any single one of us. We are not guaranteed a particular number of days. And anyone who argues that a person was taken too soon or that they suffered an untimely death are simply poor theologians. They do not believe in the sovereignty of God. And in that sense, no one dies by accident. They die at the exact moment that God decides. Remember the parable of the rich man who decides to tear down his barns and build bigger barns in which to store his abundance. And he says, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And what does God say in response? Fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Beloved, God decides when every person dies and must then stand before Him. Which explains why Jesus is so impassioned when He says in Matthew 24, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And He utters the warning twice, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at a time you do not expect. So when Jesus divinely knows the moment that Lazarus has passed from life to death, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now this catches the disciples a bit off guard because they were witnesses to the level of animosity that was brewing among the Jewish authorities. They saw them on more than one occasion pick up stones with which to put Jesus to death. And they point this out to him as though he has suffered some momentary amnesia. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Now Jesus says, let us go 
to there. Notice their phraseology, are you going there again? Instead of saying, are we going there again? They may not have been all that excited about the prospect. But Jesus' answer to their query is one of chaotic timing. Not chaotic timing, but chaotic. In Greek, there were two words that focused on time. One was chronos, which referred to sequential time, measured in seconds and minutes and hours and so on. A wristwatch is sometimes referred to as a chronometer. Chronos was quantitative in nature. But the second word was kairos, which refers to significant moments in time. It refers to opportune moments, to an appointed time. It was qualitative in nature. And this is what Jesus is referring to here when he asks the question, are there not 12 hours in the day? He and the disciples are occupying an opportune time in history by virtue of the fact that he is in the world. And while he is in the world, there is a light in the world that must be taken advantage of. It does not matter that the Jewish authorities are gunning for him because they have no power over him. God the Father is directing this unfolding drama and the religious elite in Jerusalem are bit players in it. The time is right, right now, to go to Judea again because there is a majestic work to be done in Bethany of Judea. And that work is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now it takes a moment for the disciples to comprehend what Jesus is saying. For Jesus first speaks cryptically in saying that Lazarus has fallen asleep. They first believe that he's speaking literally. But when Jesus speaks plainly and says Lazarus has died, they do not question him further, which, had they done so, might have been understandable. It is surprising to me that they don't respond to this news by saying, well, if Lazarus has died, then tell us again why we're going to his funeral. There's nothing that you can do for him now. Why don't we send flowers? Nice card. Seems like an unnecessary risk to waltz back into Jewish-controlled territory where people are lying in wait for you. They probably did not offer that objection because Jesus did not simply say Lazarus has died. He added, And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now Jesus has just added an intriguing element to this storyline. He's indicating that part of the unfolding drama is so that the disciples might believe. Believe what? Believe that he's the Christ? Do they not already believe that? Did not Simon Peter declare at the end of chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, when we look at the Gospels as a whole, we are aware that there were lingering doubts about a host of things. There were questions about where Christ was going when he said that he was leaving them and they could not follow now. There were questions about the bodily resurrection of Christ. Was it bodily or was he a ghost? There were questions about the true nature of Christ. There were questions about how Christ's mission would restore the kingdom to Israel. 
There were questions about the necessity of Christ's death on a cross and what that meant. And all of these questions and many more were signs that those closest to Jesus had lingering doubts about a lot of things. In this case, Jesus is providing them with a sign that was so great that they would never forget that his power over death in the grave was absolute. They'd already seen him raise a little girl to life after she was dead for a short while. They had witnessed his resurrection of the son of the widow of Nain, again less than a day following his death. But just as no one had ever heard of a man restoring sight to a man born blind, so no one had ever heard of a man resurrecting someone who had been dead for four days. To witness such a thing would be so astonishing that it would be impossible to explain it away. And for those upon whom God's grace came to rest, it would underscore the theology that the apostles will soon be called upon to express to the world. That people are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And that apart from Christ, there is no hope of salvation. Even though the disciples tag along, believing that their own lives are in jeopardy, this was part of their own development as apostles of Christ. They are soon to be entrusted with the good news of Christ's sinless life, His atoning death, His victorious resurrection, His regal ascension to the right hand of God. And what they will come more and more to understand is that this is a gospel worth dying for. Because it has the power to change the eternal destiny of every person who puts their faith in Christ alone. Now, beloved, that gospel has continued to proceed down through the centuries, spreading throughout the whole world, breaking into moments of opportunity for individual people to place their faith wholly in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead did not simply happen 2,000 years ago, but it has occurred every day since as the Spirit of God regenerates those whom God chooses to life and they hear the call of the Good Shepherd and they respond in faith by coming to Him. Let me ask you this morning, have you availed yourself of that chaotic moment? You see, we do not have all the chronos time in the world to decide this. There are precise moments in time when the voice of the shepherd can be heard. And if you are hearing his voice, even now, then let me invite you to surrender yourself to Christ. Cast yourself upon him. Trust in him alone for your salvation. Let me invite you to pray with me today.